You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. I do my best on these shows to tell you what you're going to get out of the show before the show, partly so that I can tell myself what to focus on, but also so that you can decide that this one matters for you or that this doesn't matter for you, in which case there's literally a thousand other episodes of The Human Upgrade that you could thumb through and find the one that's most important. You don't have to listen to all thousand of them. I'll still love you. Today, you're going to learn about happiness from someone who's studied it extensively as a science, looking at how relationships improve your physical impact in the world, mental stuff, emotional stuff, and how that environmental variable, that part of biohacking, that thing that you can control in your environment around you, which is the people around you, how you do that to live a good and happy life. How do you do that? Well, Dr. Robert Waldinger is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's only the fourth director in the study's history. This is something I've talked about on the show before. I didn't think I'd get a chance to talk with Robert. But since 1938, this study has been tracking two groups of men and their families to discover what makes a really good life. I've written on Instagram about this, I've blogged about it, and I've talked about it on other shows, but now we get to talk to the fourth guy who's been following this group for a very long time, and he's written a book called Lifelong Case Studies with a combination of modern psychological research, and the book is called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Robert, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're a professor of psychiatry, and somehow you got roped into this. How yeah. did they rope you into doing this incredibly long-lived study? Oh, well, my predecessor, George Valiant, the third director, was one of my teachers in med school. And he came and lectured about this study of all these people followed their whole lives. And I just thought, this is the coolest thing imaginable to get to study all these people over and over again throughout their lives. And then many years later, he took me out to lunch and said, how would you like to inherit this study? So my jaw dropped. And then I said, okay. (laughs) Now, it seems almost like starting a religion uh, or maybe uh, one of those families that's been around for a thousand or for a thousand years, you know, they, they pass the the secrets down in a, in a sealed room with candles. And was there some sort of ceremony when, <laughs> when you took over? <laughs> there was no ceremony at all. It was, why don't you come over to our offices and look through some of the files and see what you think? So I spent a few days doing that. And then we applied for our next grant from NIH, and we got the grant, and it was no more fancy than that. We just started together. What makes a good life? I'm asking you this as a guy who's in his eighth decade, right? And you've studied this your whole life, so, so you must know. Well, so <laughs> I'm, I, I am in my eighth decade. You're right. I am. Oh, my gosh. Um. Yeah. And the study is in its ninth decade. Whoa. Uh, So what is a good life? Well, 
what we found, which initially we didn't even believe, was that a good life is built on a foundation of solid relationships with other people. Will you indulge me for a second and imagine who you would be if you actually had more energy, if your brain fired faster and you could measure it, and you had a calmer nervous system that worked better? That's what this show, that's what my work is all about. You can be that person with a few fixes that really work. In my brand new book, Smarter Not Harder, I will teach you about the little things that make the biggest difference in your life so you can be that person. There's a new anti-nutrient that you haven't heard about yet that is weakening everything you do from your workouts to your meditations. You can remove it from your diet and you'll notice a shift quickly. Learn how to get the right amount of exercise for you in the very least amount of time and it's way less than you think. Smarter Not Harder is about simplicity and efficiency so you have more time to work on the things that matter to you. You can use the time to work on yourself or to help other people, but it's time that's yours that you're not using effectively right now. If you want to get your energy back like I did, you want to manage the stress so you can handle anything, maybe even drop the weight, check out Smarter Not Harder wherever you buy books. This is stuff you haven't seen anywhere else. Smarter Not Harder, thank you for your support. What we found, which initially we didn't even believe, was that a good life is built on a foundation of solid relationships with other people. And we didn't believe it because how could uh, relationships prevent you from getting heart disease? How could relationships affect how likely you were to get demented or to get arthritis? We just didn't understand how that worked. So we've spent the last 10 years of this study looking at exactly how relationships get into our bodies and change us for the better. When they picked those 724 people in 1938, did, were they predicting this? Was, was there a sort of a set intention or did this just emerge? This was a big accident. So they thought they were studying some teenagers and seeing how they moved into young adulthood. And they were going to study healthy, normal development. They thought maybe five to 10 years, and then the study would be done. But my predecessors kept taking the records out and saying, let's keep it going. Most studies fall apart before the 10-year mark because they lose funding or too many people drop out. There was huge luck and tremendous effort involved in keeping this study going for 85 years. One of the things that I, I really liked about this, so this is going back into the 30s. The world was a very different place. I think the definition of what makes a good life in 1938 would have been very different from you know, 2018 or 2038. But they did have the, the early mindset to say, well, what happens if we take a group of young men from Boston's poorest neighborhoods and some who are sophomores at Harvard? So you got the whole socioeconomic spectrum, which is cool. Um, when did it start including the descendants of these 724? 
That was with me. So I came on in 2002. And first I brought in as many of the wives as we could find who would play with us. That would be kind of useful, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, the women said, you know, it's about time you did this. So we brought in the wives and then we started reaching out to all the kids who are uh, mostly baby boomers and more than half of them are female. So we broadened, fortunately broadened the sample. How many of the original 724 are still around? Probably less than 40. We find out every so often when we check the national death index or when families write to us, and many families do write to us and say, you know, my family member passed away. But often we have to find out through checking with government records. Um, Got it. and, And the people who are still alive, those... You know, 30-some people are all in their late 90s or early 100s. You gave a very famous TED Talk, like one of the top 10 TED Talks ever about this with 43 million views. I'm just talking about how good relationships keep us healthier and happier. So we've got our correlation. Do you know the causation why relationships do that? We're still doing research on that. We are, and lots of other research groups, but our best hypothesis with some good data is about relationships being stress regulators. So the idea is that stress is a natural response to a challenge, and we're getting challenges, you know, day after day in our lives. And that's a good thing. You know, heart rate increases, all these things happen to the body to meet a challenge. But Then when the stress is removed, we're supposed to go back to baseline. Now, if you have somebody who's a good listener, who's good to talk to in your life, and something upsetting happens in your day, you go home or you call somebody on the phone, you can literally feel your body calm down, go back to that baseline when you talk about the stressor to somebody who's a good listener. What if you don't have anybody? What if you are so isolated that there's nobody on the planet you can talk to when you're upset? We think that that has a lot to do with keeping some people in this kind of chronically agitated state with higher levels of stress hormones, higher levels of chronic inflammation that gradually break down our bodies and our brains. Maybe that's why there are studies that show that getting a dog but not a cat, makes you live way longer, like like some like eight year difference in it. And some people say, oh, it's the microbiome because the dog licks its butt. But I I think it might be the fact that you can tell your dog all your problems and it just looks at you and wags its tail because that's what dogs do, right? I think that's exactly right. And dogs give us pretty much unconditional love, more so than cats. Some cats do, but most cats don't. Dogs are just there to love us. And that makes a huge difference in our physiology. Plus, dogs will chase cats away, which is a benefit, right? Works for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm, 
I'm so intrigued at a study this long. It, it's one of those things that, that kind of feels like it should be in a science fiction book or yeah. in Dune. You know, we're, we're <laughs> going to do the, the Kisas Haderach. We're, we're going to you know, look at multiple generations and maybe do a little bit of planning. Did you guys ever sit down and say, well, what would happen if we got like this happy person, like to meet that happy person, their descendants intermix, and we create like the uber happiness person who has rainbows Nothing I love like that. that. I love that. We can't do that. So oh. we are. We have all these rules and regulations we have to follow because we're a research study, right? So we can't even tell study members who else is in the study. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. No, and we can't ever reveal their names. Now, we have a few people who have outed themselves in public, so we can say their names, but otherwise we can't. I couldn't tell you who was in the study. And, and actually, we can't tell children what their parents said to us. Because, oh, wow. Yeah. Do you have any super famous people in the study? I know you won't tell me their names. But. No, I will, because he was outed. Oh. John F. Kennedy was in the study. Okay. And Ben Bradley was in the study. And the editor of the Washington Post for many years, who oversaw the, you know, the exposing of the Watergate scandal. Um, back when it was a newspaper. I remember those back days. Back when yeah. it was a newspaper. And <laughs> Ben Bradley wrote about this in his autobiography, which is why we can talk about it. Ah, okay. So you, you can out, uh, they can out themselves, and then you can talk about them. I get exactly, it. Um, exactly. Exactly. I, I do the same thing with my neuroscience brain upgrade program. Like if you talk about it, then I can, I can use your name, but I never talk about people who are in it who just want to be confidential, which is cool. Yes. What, what's the most surprising thing? that you have seen out of the study? Just the single most whoa factor? Probably the single most whoa factor is how many different twists and turns these lives take. And so a takeaway from that, which we find is that it is never too late, that people who think, ah, my life hasn't gone well, I have terrible relationships, life has passed me by, those people can find friendship. They can find love, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, when they never expected to. And so this idea that we just never know what's going to happen to us, I find truly surprising because we have so many life stories that demonstrate this fact. How much of your happiness is under your control? There was actually an estimate of this there's a psychologist named Sonia Lubomirsky, and she did a bunch of analyses, and she estimates that 40% of our happiness is in our control, that about 40% is genetics. We're kind of born with a certain temperament. About 20% is our current life circumstances, and then about 40% is, you know, movable, changeable by us. Do you really believe that? You've had a great career in psychiatry, that we have a happiness set point, that, that you're just genetically 40% set to just be a curmudgeon and kind of have a, a hateful personality? Uh, not hateful necessarily. Could be okay. gloomy. Okay, do, did you ever read gloomy. Winnie? Remember Winnie the Pooh? Absolutely. Okay, do you remember Eeyore? Very much so. Thanks for thinking of me. And then do you remember Tigger, who's like bouncy all the time? Yep. Uh, those are different temperaments. And you probably know people like that. You know, some people for whom the glass is always half empty and they're really gloomy. And some people for whom it's always half full. 
I, I've seen so many gloomy people come in and you do really deep forgiveness, uh, neurofeedback, heart rate variability training. And I feel like you can teach almost anyone to make the glass half full. It just requires dropping a lot of old traumas. Like it, it might be an environmental thing, not a genetic thing. Well, easier said than done. So I part, part of my day job is I am a psychotherapist. I'm a psychoanalyst and a therapist. So I work with people every day. And I work with some people whose mood changes really fast when we have some sessions. Like it really gets better quickly. Other people for whom it takes a long, long time. And that healing of past traumas, as you say, is possible for lots of people, but it takes a while. And do you think that's a predominant thing or even for that population, even if they healed all of their childhood wounds, all of their generational whatevers, that still genetically, they're still just Eeyore and that that's not to be changed? Interesting. I think so. And that's what I believe there are pretty good studies. The the more technical term for it is temperament. And we think some of that is inborn. You know, if you look at Ayurvedic systems or even Rudolf uh, Steiner's work, uh, which are very esoteric, but they still come up with the same general, some people are phlegmatic and some people aren't, uh, or you're pita or vata or whatever. So there's something going on there. I, I get that. Because exactly. it's the same human life, right? We can look yep. at it through all our different fancy lenses, but it's the same human being. What's the difference between thriving and being happy? Okay. Thriving, I think of in the same breath with well-being. What's the difference between thriving and being happy? Okay. Thriving, I think of in the same breath with well-being, right? a basic sense that of the okayness of life, which is different from being happy. Um, so like, okay, am I happy right now? So I'm having this interesting conversation with you and I'm pretty happy right now. But an hour from now, something really annoying could happen and I won't be happy at all. But this sense of well-being, this sense of thriving is a way of f- feeling about your life, that my life has meaning my life is basically okay. I basically have a lot of what I need in order to be okay. That is what I think you're talking about when you talk about thriving. And nobody can be happy all the time. You, it doesn't matter how enlightened you are. It doesn't matter how much you meditate or what kind of diet you eat. Nobody is happy all the time, full stop. That's interesting. I mean, you must have a quantitative measure of happiness then. Is this EEG? Like, How do you measure happiness? We measure it in different ways. Like no single measure does it. So I can ask you, how happy are you? I can give you a questionnaire. And that's pretty good. That's your subjective report. But what if you think you're supposed to answer that you're happy because otherwise we'll judge you, right? So we also... Ask other people how happy they think you are. What if I asked your three closest friends? What if we measured your heart rate and your heart rate variability when we stressed you and then we saw how quickly you recovered? Or we saw how quickly you recovered when you held your romantic partner's hand? Mm. Um, There are all kinds of things we can do. What if we put you in the MRI scanner, which we did, 
and showed you different positive and negative pictures, happy and sad pictures, and saw what your net brain networks were like and which ones lit up. So there were all these different windows on what we call happiness. And we use as many of them as we can. What does having good relationships in your life do to the percentage happiness metric now that we have a quantitative measure for it? This is really interesting. I don't know. I, we, I can't, like if I gave you a percentage metric, I'd be making it up. Um, so what we can tell you is that when we study thousands of people, that the people with the better relationships are the happier and healthier. And we can tell you something about what we call effect size, meaning how big, you know, is it a tiny little nudge in one direction or is it really a big effect? And it's a pretty big effect, but I can't give you a percentage. And even, even Luba Mirsky's 40%, 40% and 20% is a, is a rough estimate. It, it feels false to me, or it feels like that's in an untrained mind because I know uh, the state that I used to live in. And I know lots of people who've, who've spent a meaningful amount of time meditating and that 40% of stuff that happens in the world around you, when you have mastered things, you're capable of maintaining your state, even if the world around you is, is kind of falling apart. And in fact, you can uptrain equanimity which is that exact ability to do it. So to me, it feels like 40% that you would ascribe, I think in that, um, that you describe to external circumstances, or was that her 20% number? Whatever that number was. That, 20, 20% was your external circumstances. 20%, okay. So we should have at least 20% control, really, no matter what, when we are you know, psychologically, emotionally, or electrically trained, whatever you want to call that, that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's a limit to how much you can train any of us. You can stress sure. any of us to the point where we're beyond our limits. And that's oh, just... Certainly. Yeah. Um, between physical stress and emotional stress and, and all of that. And, and some of the world's, you know, greatest heroes have just with uh, have been able to withstand incredible amounts of stress like that in prisons and while being repressed and things like that. And somehow they pulled out of it, but I'm sure they had a dark night of the soul in there too. They weren't oh, happy yeah. the whole time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Part of your research uh, in your book, uh, you talk about how a good life requires growth and change. And certainly I'm doing my best to, to live that. In fact, I don't think we can avoid it even if we wanted to. <laughs> right. Um, but what I want to understand is you say relationships are a central player in the growth process in the book. How do relationships do that? Have you ever wondered if you're getting enough protein or what's the best source? Maybe you don't know which plant foods, if any, to include in your diet. If so, I want you to go to the protein panel, Plants versus Animals, at my ninth annual biohacking conference, hosted June 22nd to 24th in Orlando. This is just one of many main stage panels where you can learn from guys like Max Lugavere, Dr. Mark Hyman, and Dr. Amy Shaw as we go through the merits of both approaches. But that's just the beginning. You get to spend the weekend exploring the biohacking wonderland. 65,000 square feet of tech hall with more than 100 biohacking tools and toys, all approved by me. And you get to talk to the founders. It's the biggest collection in the world, and you're bound to find something to upgrade whatever it is you're working on. 
To get the best deal on tickets, sign up now. The sooner you register, the more you save, and the conference will sell out as June approaches like it did last year. So take action today. Go to biohackingconference.com and get your ticket right now. If you read my anti-aging book, you know that there are seven things that cause aging in your body, and one of the biggest ones you could call zombie cells. Those are cells in your body that are done living, but they don't really die. They sit around, they take up resources, and they make free radicals and inflammation. As you age, you get more and more zombie cells. They also cause aging symptoms like less energy and longer recovery times. I've been working with my friends at Neurohacker on a formula that would cause your body to eliminate those zombie cells. It's called Qualia Synolytics. It's a new kind of supplement. It's got the most powerful herbal and natural synolytics, and it's so powerful you only take it for two days per month to turn on this cleanup of your zombie cells. You don't take it every day because you don't want your body to get rid of those cells every day because that would get in the way of your body's normal functioning. In other words, you need to do a once a month cleaning cycle. When you check it out, you'll feel the difference. Go to neurohacker.com slash Dave, use code ASPRI15, they'll give you 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave, code ASPRI15. What I want to understand is you say relationships are a central player in the growth process in the book. How do relationships do that? Because it seems like changing relationships is part of growth and change also. Well, it is. Um, every, you know, In any relationship, in any two-person relationship, you have two continuously changing people, right? So there's always change happening in any relationship. But part of what we learn to do is be agile with each other. When a relationship is good, you can start doing something new. And then I have to, I have to see what, what I make of that. I, see, I have to see how I respond when you change the way you operate in the world or you operate with me, right? And, and it, in many ways, it keeps us alive and it keeps relationships vibrant and interesting. And the trouble we get into is when we don't want to let each other evolve and change, then there's lots of misery. So when, when your relationships or the people that you have relationships with in your life are holding you back, that creates a lack of happiness for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It seems like Erickson made his Ericksonian stages of adult development, sort of these, these decades that people tend to go through. And when you're young, you can't see these because you just don't have context for it. It's like someone tries to explain what Mount Everest is like, and then you go there one day and you're like, oh, <laughs> it feels very different than what I imagined. So, uh, you know, or you, you, you know, have a baby you're like, oh, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Exactly. So what, what are the differences between this adolescence, you know, up until you're 20, young adulthood till you're 40, then midlife till you're about 65, and then late life? Walk me through what's happening and what you learned from your study with happiness in those phases. Well, Eric Erickson is the one you just named, and he was the first person to really lay this out as a set of what he called dialectics, challenges, where you have a kind of dilemma that you want to solve uh, at your particular life stage. So I'll give you an example. Um, young adulthood is um, intimacy versus isolation. So young adulthood, he said, was the stage where you, you 
try to see whether you can achieve an intimate partnership with somebody or whether you're going to remain alone. Now, we don't do that only during young adulthood. We can do it in adolescence. We can do it in our 70s or 80s. But he said this is is the time when you do a lot of it. He then talked about um, midlife as a time when we uh, deal with either generativity or stagnation. And what he meant is generativity is this idea of investing beyond the self. So young adulthood, you find your partner, maybe you find meaningful work, but then in midlife, you start to say, what do I want to live on in the world when I'm not here anymore? Because we begin to have these intimations of mortality. And then you think, okay, do I want to raise kids? Do I want to mentor younger people? I mean, you're, you have a mentoring group who's here with us today, right? That seems yep. to me that comes from some generative impulses, according to Eric Erickson, right? Right. And so that, Erickson said, is the real issue for people at midlife. And then he said that when we get to older age, we go through something called integrity versus despair. And what he meant was that when we're more toward the end of our lives, we look back on where we've been and we say, has this been good enough? Have I had a decent run of things? Or is it despair? Is it a feeling of I've wasted my life? And so those are kind of the three big adult phases that Erickson talks about. And then he's got a bunch of phases that happen earlier on in child development. Yeah, there's a lot of debate over the different stages in early childhood development, I I think, still. And in adulthood. You know, first of all, none of these stages are in lockstep, right? Like, we're always dealing with some of these dilemmas, and we deal with them at different times. I mean, think about... Think about the woman who raises her kids and then becomes a corporate CEO in her 50s for the first time, or the guy who makes his fortune in his 20s and then retires. Uh, I mean, these are such different life stages and life paths than Erickson envisioned. And, And now, if anything, there are different timetables and different life paths open to us that that probably weren't nearly as uh, available when Erickson was doing his work. It seems like like humans have been working on this happiness thing forever, but in modern recorded history, you have actually the, um, the biggest and longest data set. So I want to break it down. We talked about those big stages. So if you are talking to someone who is just turning 20, right, and they've got you know their 20s to 30s and 30s to 40s ahead of them, what would the single biggest piece of advice for them to be happy? What would that be based on this study? Pretty much invest in relationships. And if you invest in them in different parts of your life, including at work, you are very likely to be happy. So you can say, well, I've got to, I've got to do my work, right? You know, but actually what we find is that the people who are more connected and better connected at work are happier and more successful. Oh, that's a big one. Cause we have this whole thing of, quiet quitting now that some sort of nihilists are talking about where you're supposed to be miserable at work and you're supposed to hate your life. And then you're supposed to basically stab your colleagues in the back by not working as part of the team and just doing the minimum required until um, they 
quiet fire you, uh, which is yeah. also a thing yeah. that maybe young people haven't learned about yet. So, um, so you're saying good relationships at work, which requires paying attention and being present, uh, and then good relationships out of work. Okay, yeah. how does that shift? And so now you got the people who are in their 40s to 65 in, in Erickson's work. What's the biggest piece of happiness advice for that group? Well, then it becomes uh, thinking about generativity, thinking about mentoring, investing in things beyond the self. I mean, one of the things that, you know, spiritual teachers have told us for millennia, right, is that when we invest in things and people beyond the self, we really are happier and life is more meaningful. And midlife is a time when we may have the room to do that. It may be raising kids. It may be starting a nonprofit. It may be volunteering for a cause you love. Um, any number of things where you get outside the self, you get outside the I, me, mine, and my tiny little tribe mindset and really say, okay, what do I want to have in the world that I can help put there? Mm, I like that a lot. Okay. And then let's talk about late life. You know, you're 65, although I think a lot of 65 year olds would say um, those numbers need to be updated because I don't feel like I'm in late life. I feel like I'm in midlife still, especially if they're doing the anti-aging stuff. But yeah. let's say, okay, 65 plus, what changes? So do you stop caring about mentoring? What's, what's the biggest happiness hack there? No, you don't stop caring about mentoring. In fact, you may care more. Um, often people think more about what they want to have live in the world once they're dead. Mm. Uh, because, you know, by the time you're 65, it's begun to dawn on you, okay, I'm really not going to be the exception to this mortality thing. And so you begin to think much harder about um, what 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 should be here when I'm gone. I mean, think about how, how all of us are thinking about climate change, or many of us are thinking about climate change. I mean, I'm not going to suffer from the devastation of climate change anywhere near uh, um, to the extent that my children will or that people coming after them will. And yet I'm really invested in this because there's something in me that says I care about what happens to the world when I'm not in it anymore. And I think many people late in life have that sense that they they do care and that they they. Uh, it's it's an investment in the world. And I think the advice I would give across the board, no matter what age you are, is stay invested. Don't do quiet quitting from your life, whether that's at work or within your relationships. You know, quiet quitting is deadening. <laughs> uh, wow. That's powerful. Don't do quiet quitting from life. Uh, those are Those are great words. So staying invested is what you do late in life. And I, I've noticed something, and this actually comes from Burning Man, of all places. I ended up being the founder um, of a camp, and over time it grew to somewhere 50 to 70 people who'd show up. And it's always the most fun when you have some, we'll just call them elders, people who've been around the block a few times, and you have a, a bunch of people in the middle and you all, you need to have a, a group of early 20 somethings. Mm. And, and what it feels like is happening in the context of relationships is that you're getting this transmission of wisdom from the elders 
and you're getting a transmission of energy from the young to the elders. And that if you really want to be happy when you're young, you should have some friends two or three times your age. And, and I'm so blessed that that's how I learned about anti-aging was from people in their 80s when I was in my 20s and really sick. And they were telling me how to fix it. Ah. Uh, and I know I was giving them a gift of just being energetic and curious and reminding them of what it was like when you know they cared about things that I cared about at the time. Um, any data in your in your study about age range of friendships and happiness? We haven't studied it specifically. We probably have those data somewhere and we could probably do it, but do we, haven't, we haven't looked at it specifically. Right. What we do know, though, is that we can, for example, pair older folks with preschoolers. Like they often will have wow. people in retirement communities go and spend time in preschool classes and everybody loves it. The older people love the energy and the curiosity that the preschoolers bring. And the preschoolers love having these older people who will listen to them and read to them and talk with them and take them seriously. Um, so we know that combining, just in just the way you're saying, combining the generations has huge payoff in terms of everybody nourishing everybody else. We used to do this in our tribes or our clans or even in our churches, right? That there were these meeting areas where we'd bring um, a, a bunch of different age ranges together around some sort of shared mission, whether it's staying alive or you know, connecting with God or whatever, you know, whatever the, the stated thing is. But it, it seems like that's, that's missing. You know, oftentimes go to yoga class with, you know, 70 year olds and 20 year olds and the same thing. And, and it, so it, it feels like we've parsed our kids so you're in school with only with people exactly your age, you know, no learning from kids three years older or three years younger. And then we just kind of go through life in these, oh, your friends, they also have kids the same age as yours. So we're all kind of wearing these blinders. Yeah. What I would recommend anyone listening to the show does today is go out there and, and make a friend who's substantially older and substantially younger than you are. And if you're 25, I'm serious, find a five-year-old <laughs> that, you know, a, a niece or a nephew or something and take them out to lunch and just listen. You'll be like, oh my God, I, I that did something for me. <laughs> and if you're 20 and you find someone who's 50 or even better yet, 80, just get to know them well enough that they know something about your life and you know something about them and they will save you like thousands of hours of suffering with a half hour of their time because they already did the work. And a lot of my work is based on those conversations, but that, that just seems so important. And maybe that's part of what I want to ask you about next, which is social fitness. This is in your book. You talk about working out your relationships. So what is social fitness and how do I get better at it? Because I probably suck at it. Well, we think of it analogous to physical fitness. So you go to the gym and you work out today. You don't come home and say, I'm done. I don't ever have to do that again. But we often do that with relationships. I used to think, oh, my good friends are always going to be my good friends. That I don't have to do anything specifically about those. What we find from our study and from life is that really perfectly good relationships can wither away from neglect. Not because anybody's angry at each other, just because you don't spend the time. So what we have been talking about, because we, we saw people live this, is that the people who really actively 
proactively made the time, called people up, had people over to their house, did things with people in the world. The, the, the people who made those efforts again and again and again were the people who had strong, healthy relationships. So that means, like for me, you know, I'm a Harvard professor. I could spend every minute of every day working. And I used to find that I would sit at my laptop and edit one more scientific paper that the world didn't really need. And, or I could talk to my friend who I hadn't seen in a while or ask him to go for a walk or have coffee with somebody. And what I've made myself do now quite happily is really deliberately make sure that every week, more than once a week, I see people who I want to be sure I'm with, that I stay in touch with, that I keep in my life. And that's what we're talking about with social fitness. Does that mean that you should put it on your calendar? I you mean, should, yeah, you could. Absolutely, you could put it on your calendar. You could put it on your calendars. You could you could stop and think right now when you're done with this podcast, right? You could think, okay, who have I not seen in a while and I really miss? Who would I like to have some contact with? And you could just pull out your phone and send them a text. Like these little actions that you could do right now will have wonderful ripple effects. Sometimes I do that when I give a talk. Toward the end of the talk, I'll say, okay, everybody, think of somebody you want to connect with. Pull out your phone, text them now. And then sometimes during the question and answer, I'll say, did anybody hear back? And people will raise their hands and say, oh, my friend just had surgery and she was so glad that I reached out. Or I made a date with my friend for dinner next week. And, you know, there, there are all these kind of little hits of well-being that come back to us when we do that. All right. So texting friends more often. Do you keep a list somewhere of like your five closest friends? Are you conscious about that? Do you have like a little rolled up thing in your pocket? I How don't. Work? I don't. I don't. But I, I probably in my phone, like I have a whole little, you know, my favorites, like in my texts, yep. you know, I know who the favorites are and I, and I, you know, they're the, the people I'm most active texting with, emailing with are always there at the top of my, uh, my feeds of various sorts. Do they know who they are? I have to be more mindful about telling them. And you're raising a really good point, which is that we often don't tell people how grateful we are for them and that that's a huge source of well-being for us, the ones who say we're grateful. So saying you're grateful makes you healthier and receiving gratitude makes you healthier. So that's one of those perpetual motion machines that we can easily do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody yeah. wins. Do you ever intentionally put together like a dinner with all of your top five? Is that a good practice or do you keep them separate? I don't keep them separate. Um, okay. What I found is that that having people meet each other is a great source of pleasure. Some people don't like that I who I really like don't like each other, but often they really hit it off, and it's it's fun to watch people connect. People I love connect with each other. Um, so so yeah, I share my uh, friends. <laughs> so I, I'm relatively lazy uh, about this stuff, uh, and I don't know, I don't use lazy as a bad thing. I, Mother Nature wants you to conserve energy. Uh, and besides I used to have Asperger's syndrome, so I get a get out of jail free card, but I, I have a couple of friends, um, like who've all been on the show, like Joe Polish or Mike Koenigs or, or JJ Virgin and a few others who 
um, are just masters of connecting people. And they're always putting on events and I can go to those. I go to my own event and then I'm surrounded by people that I like and, yeah. and all that. So it's almost like I have these amazing nodes in my life who uh, generate relationships yeah. in a very easy way. Anything in your study come out around those super connector types who just seem to naturally be be more socially fit than the average person? You know, there's always the Schwarzeneggers walking around looking amazing, and there's the social equivalent of these yeah. of these yeah. bodybuilders. Yeah. Well, there were people in our study who were the natural connectors. There was one woman who worked in the payroll department of her company, and people just loved her, and she was always having workmates over for barbecues and actually regular like weekly and so their house was always kind of an open house now not everybody's like that not everybody is that gregarious and not everybody needs that some people just need one or two close relationships when we when we asked our study participants this question it was really telling we asked who could you call in the middle of the night, if you were sick or scared. And some people could list, you know, several people. Some people couldn't list anybody. Some of those people were married and they couldn't list anybody that they could call in the middle of the night. And so I think part of what we know everybody needs in order to thrive is a sense that there are at least one or two people in the world who they feel really have their back, who would be there if they needed them. That's a, that's a really, it's a powerful gift to have people like that in your life. Um, part of what came out in your, uh, in your research is you found that loneliness made you more sensitive to pain, worse immune function, lower brain function, and that even your sleep didn't work as well. And so if you were lonely and you didn't have relationships, all of the problems got amplified. It's one of the reasons I moved to Austin from Vancouver Island because living on a farm in the middle of a wet forest where there's very few people around, I don't think it was feeding me socially in a way that I need. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to be in a place with enough people to be able to have in-person relationships instead of text only, which happens when you're isolated. Any data on people who live in the middle of nowhere versus people who live in busy social centers? What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Any data on people who live in the middle of nowhere versus people who live in busy social centers? We didn't have many people who lived in the middle of nowhere because the people who started in our study were pretty urban. 
Or they were Bostonians, right? Yeah, they were Bostonians or they were Harvard College undergrads from all over the country. But most of those people came from cities. There were some people who lived, you know, in rural places, some of them isolated, some of them not. Um, But social, as we know, social isolation is different from loneliness. So social isolation is living in the middle of a forest. Um, Loneliness can be living in the middle of a crowd and just feeling like you're not connected with people. Um, And both of those are difficult for us, both emotionally and physically. You talked about the power of generosity already, where, you know, you, you tell the person you're grateful for them, they're grateful for you. What else about generosity drives relationships in your research? People who give of themselves feel better about themselves. And so not just generosity with gratitude or praise, but generosity with your time, with your wisdom, with your resources, including your money. Uh, Generosity, giving somebody a ride to the doctor, um, giving help coming over and helping somebody repair their deck, whatever it might be. Um, and, and what, what the world happiness report finds this UN report is that people all over the world say that one of the core aspects of a good life is opportunities to be generous. And so what we know is that people who are generous in all kinds of different ways feel better and feel life is more meaningful. It's true. I, I spend a, an enormous amount of time uh, with entrepreneurs I'm advising on how to build their companies because I feel like I can save them a lot of time. But it, it is it is a, a use of time and energy for me, but I think it's one that's worthy. And it the net return for the whole system of people, I think, is pretty good. So I'm willing to do it. Um, you also talk about learning new dance steps as one of the things that energizes relationships. What does that mean? Well, it's back to that idea we were talking about that we're all changing all the time. And that when we relate to each other in one way in our 20s, that may not be the right way for us to be with each other in our 30s or in our 60s, right? So we learn new dance steps together, certainly in a, in a partnership, in an intimate partnership, in a marriage. Um, you know, in fact, the, the couples that really stay together stably and happily are the couples that learn new dance steps with each other, that learn to adapt as each person grows and changes. Um, otherwise, I mean, think about it. You know, if you had to sign up at age 25 or 30 for an intimate partnership and you could never change one bit, <laughs> you know, till death do you part, I mean, that would be that would be an impossible straitjacket in which to live. So we need to adapt to each other. We need to learn new dance steps in our relationships. God is so continued evolution. I, I've seen so many relationships over the years of friends where one friend says, I'm going to start working on myself and the other one doesn't. And those are the relationships, whether they're friendships or marriages, where they don't last because the gap becomes bigger and bigger. Um, and there's also times when they're both evolving and they evolve in different directions. And then that's also, that's actually a healthy situation versus where one person's stuck and one person's not, but either way it can happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had Esther Perel on the show talking about relationships and all, and it seems like there are, there are more people who are getting divorced. Certainly the data shows that than before, if you go back a long time. 
And is that because of people evolving in different directions? Is that because of people just not learning new dance steps? What do you think is causing that? It could be both of those. Um, it could be that what seemed like a good partnership at one time of life no longer serves either person very well later on. Um, you know, and that there's so, as you know, there's so many different reasons why people split up, why relationships don't last. Um, but I think the, this idea of adapting to each other and, and learning to be together in different ways is, is certainly the key to having them last. And also, you know, what we found in our research was that couples could argue like cats and dogs, and that wasn't a problem. As long as they maintained a bedrock of affection and respect. And, and that's important because, you know, here I am talking about good relationships. And you can think that I mean oh, kumbaya all the time, that everybody's just blissfully happy and there are never any conflicts. Not true. Every relationship has conflicts. It's really how we negotiate those conflicts that makes relationships stronger or weaker. That is the challenge, isn't it? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, there's always stuff that you wish you wouldn't have done, but that you did, you know. And then you have all the hindsight's 2020, and then you get all the guilt and shame, and then you can have a career as a psychiatrist or psychologist doing therapy. Who would have imagined, right? <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about a third aspect of energizing relationships, which was radical curiosity. Mm. Yeah. What is the what is radical curiosity? It's just what it sounds like. It's being genuinely curious about the person you're with, including somebody you feel like you know like the back of your hand, right? That you know them so well. You know what they're going to say. You know what they're going to do. And often we feel that way about family members. And so what we find is that a way to liven up and energize a relationship is just to bring what we call in Zen beginner's mind to a long established relationship. Um, where one of my actually one of my Zen teachers gave me the assignment during the meditation, which is what when you're looking at something or you're with someone who you know really well and you've done this thing a thousand times, ask yourself the question: What's here? that I've never noticed before. And so the assignment is to find something new in what seems old and tired and well-worn. And if we could do that in our relationships, lots of interesting things start to happen. Mm. So it's radical curiosity about your partner or about yourself, or is it both? Oh, definitely both. Definitely both. Okay. Well, because, you know, why am I reacting like this? Or am I really sure that this is true? Or, you know, is this, this cherished opinion of mine, is it really true? How do I know that? That, that sounds kind of dangerous. I mean, what would happen if we had a world full of people who questioned their opinions and changed based on what the actual situation was? I mean, who knows what they might do? Who knows what they might do? I mean, <laughs> you know, there's a big, there's a, a moniker in uh, the first t-shirt I ever got that was a Zen t-shirt had on the back, don't believe everything you think. Oh, so such a beautiful, such a beautiful statement. As a, 
One of the things I didn't say in your introduction is that you are a Zen master as well, right? Yep. So uh, there are many meditating people and other energy workers who use uh, danger coffee and all because it turns out when your mitochondria work better uh, in my system, which is cross lineage, um, your mitochondria are some of the primary antennas of reality and that they see reality before your brain does. And I can prove that from my neuroscience company, which funny is called 40 years of Zen because the idea is to compact 40 years of daily practice into a week of really intense practice. With <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> oh, well, th thank you. I'm not saying that the wisdom that you get from you know, being a Roshi comes with it, but that the, the exact mental state is possible electrically. And mm. that that comes with a open heartedness and loving kindness and deep uh, compassionate forgiveness and all those, those can be induced very quickly. But it, it's interesting that uh, when you get down to the perceptors of reality, it's provably your cellular components see it, and then your brain gets it a third of a second later. Mm. So I'm like, what if we're using our hearts to program our bodies to better perceive reality and maybe even to, to affect reality? Uh, and that uh, when I look at that in the context of relationships like this, the very beginning of the show, like why do relationships matter? A fascinating paper came out a couple of weeks before we're recording this that didn't get all the press it should have. And I'm not, it'll probably be my cool facts of the day on the podcast. I do a special episode once a month about it. Huh. But for the first time ever, researchers looked at proton spin in humans and put it on a plot along with heartbeat. And lo and behold, every time your heart beats, the proton spin in your body changes, which hmm. is. 100% absolute proof that we are quantum systems. We've mm. studied quantum biology for a long time, but that just proves something that we didn't know. So we are big quantum computers, which means we can affect all of the things around us all the time via mm. entanglement. Mm. So it gets very interesting very quickly. I can't prove any of that's why these relationships make you happier. But if you focus your, um, your intent you focus your will and you also focus your heart or your beingness on another person with good thoughts. I don't know. I just spent a week hanging out with Joe Dispenza. He's got some really strong science that shows clinical outcomes from intent. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a lot more going on under the blankets where we're not supposed to be looking unless we're really radically curious that says maybe we can propose a mechanism of action for why the people in your study have found relationships matter. And, and you can look at it from well, what's correlated or you can look at it from like what's at the very bottom. Like why does it all work? How does it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any theories there? What do you think from all your Zen experience? What, how does that come into this? Well, we, you know, there's so much we don't understand with our rational minds. And that's what you're pointing to, right? That a that lot, lot, lot goes on. We're not we didn't evolve to perceive reality accurately. We evolved no. to perceive reality in a way that keeps us passing on our genes, right? So there's so much going on beyond our ability to comprehend or even perceive it. So it doesn't surprise me at all that you're finding these things. And, and we will continue to find so much more as our perceptual faculties improve. But we're never going to we're never going to crack the, the truth of reality. We're just seeing the world to, to a considerable extent as we make it up. 
in our mind. Uh, we're seeing the world to a considerable extent as we make it up. <laughs> that actually matches many different, uh, both hard science lineages that I've studied. Um, that reminds me of On Intelligence by, oh, the guy who started Palm Pilots, um, who refuses to come on the show because he wrote the book so long ago. He doesn't want to talk about it. Um, and several other, several others where it's hard, but then of course, most of the secret and people from, from that lineage and a lot of the Eastern philosophies would agree with that. So what a beautiful statement. Did you just make that up on the fly? Um, I, I've heard the idea from many people. I, I, that wording, I probably just made up on the fly. That's very well put. So kudos. I'm putting your name after that and making a quote on Instagram. So there. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Another part of your book, I want to make sure we just download as much knowledge as we can for people on the show, people who are listening. You call it The Person Beside You, How Intimate Relationships Shape Our Lives. So let's start out there. Attachment styles. Are you in favor of them? Are you opposed to them? Are you leaving them? You know, what, what's the deal here? That's right, right. Am I in favor of gravity? It probably doesn't <laughs> matter. I thought you might say that, all right. Really? I mean, attachment is. It just happens. Like we know, we know that the human being it has a long, long period of depending on other human beings for their survival. And so we need to figure out ways to stay attached to at least one other person who will take care of us because we can't take care of ourselves for a long time. And that means we develop a certain style of staying connected to another person. And most of us are securely attached meaning we can give and receive love, we can let each other come and go. Uh, but there are some of us who are really anxiously attached where we, can't, we feel we can't count on someone to be there when we needed, need them. And then there are others of us who are what we call avoidantly attached, meaning we like try to pretend we don't need anybody because we're too scared uh, of needing somebody. So there are these different flavors and we're all somewhere on these different continua of attachment styles. I've also come across ambivalent attachment as a fourth category. Yeah. What's the difference between someone who's ambivalently attached versus someone who's avoidant? It, ambivalently attached refers, and often it's, it's uh, what people who've been badly traumatized emerge with into adulthood if they've been traumatized as kids. And it refers to a kind of push-pull where it's like, I hate you, don't leave me. Uh, it's get away from me uh, and I'm going to hold on to you tight. Sometimes one moment to the next. It can be very chaotic. Yeah, there's, there's so much wisdom and knowledge. And I wish I'd have known about attachment styles, you know, my, my twenties, when I first started having real relationships, because I would have done the work. And by the way, guys, if you're listening, and this is the second largest group of people listening to the show is in 25 to 35. So there's tons of people in that category. And third after that is, is people in their early twenties. So do the work to know your own attachment style. Once you get that, then when you start dating, okay, yes, they're cute. Yes, they're good in bed. Those are nice. But if their attachment style is not right for you, just hit the next button, like swipe right. It's okay. Or left, whatever that guy, I don't know. I don't do online dating. But 
that's how you do it. And if instead you say, oh, they're cute, they're hot, therefore let's get in a relationship and their attachment style pushes buttons for yours, you know, welcome to 10 years of hell before you get divorced. It's that straightforward. If only they would tell you that when you were young. But there, now someone told you. And it wasn't just me telling you that. We've got a guy who's like twice as knowledgeable as I am because, well, he's got a lot more mileage and he's probably better studied. So there you go. Anything wrong with what I just said there? <laughs> no, it's pretty good. It's pretty okay. good. It's really just, you know, it's, it's like to really, as you say, really pay attention to are our styles of being connected similar enough or are we like fingernails on a blackboard for each other? It, it's those times when you're um, physically attracted uh, and there, there's clearly passion, but you're also fingers on a blackboard. Those can be some of the most addictive and harmful relationships, even for secure attachment people. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. It's all doable almost with surveys and with working with the therapist. So if you're thinking about making a long-term commitment or moving in together or getting engaged or getting married or whatever, um, you might want to do that kind of work. And if you want to do the whole poly thing, Kudos, you have freedom to do whatever you want to do, but you might want to look at your attachment style and it's going to be twice as hard because you got to look at the attachment style for all the other people that you're going to simultaneously date. Uh, so I see a lot of people run into a lot of trouble in their 20s because logically you should just be able to be in love with 25 people all at the same time. But I don't think your attachment system that's automated is going to, is going to do that until you do the work. So um, let's talk about family because... The people in your study, some of them presumably had intact families, some of them didn't. Early childhood trauma seems to affect attachment style. It seems to affect lifelong happiness. So what did you find from your study about early childhood? We find that it matters a lot, to, to state the obvious, but that what happens to us in childhood is really important in shaping our expectations of what the world is like. You know, so if you've been betrayed by the people who you're supposed to trust, if you've been physically or sexually abused or emotionally abused, um, it can seem like the world is a dangerous place. And it's very hard then to trust the new people who come into your life. But new people can come into your life who you can come to trust. And then that reshapes our expectations. So Again, the idea is it's never too late. Childhood, even if you had a difficult childhood, it's not a prescription for a difficult adulthood. There are all kinds of things that can change and all kinds of corrective healing experiences we can have as we grow up and move into the world and out of our families of origin. How many of the people in your study had the wisdom the relationships, the advice, the therapists, whatever it took in order to make that kind of a change? Or could you even tell? It was difficult to tell. Uh, we know that some of the most troubled young men who were on, on a clear path to like prison, like you know, lives of crime and difficulty, were able to turn their lives around because they found a good partner. And so one of the things we know is that finding a good partner gives you a stake in the world and a stake in life that can really turn your life around. But we didn't systematically study it in the way that you're talking about. So I can't tell you, you know, what all 724 men did as they moved through life in that regard. What made you decide to go into Zen? Hmm. So I... 
realized really when I was a teenager and then as I got into adulthood, I realized how much stupid stuff I worry about. Like <laughs> stuff that doesn't amount to anything. Look, I I would worry about like, did I get invited to this party? Or did I get get that award? Or, you know, and then I and I would realize you know, nobody cares. You know, 50 years from now, nobody's going to care or know. Why Why am I worried about this stupid stuff? Why are other people worried about status, about having the right brand of jeans or sneakers or whatever it might be? Why do we worry about this stuff? And, and Zen was the only, Buddhism in particular, Buddhist philosophy, was the, the only philosophical system that I encountered that sort of uh, made sense to me in this regard, helped me think about why, why I was so preoccupied with things that didn't matter. And it helped, it's helped me a lot to see through and hold more lightly some of the stupid stuff that I, <laughs> that I worry about and believe. Do you still have that voice in your head that's worrying about those things on a daily basis? Yes, I do. And, but I, and now I can talk to myself a little differently about it and put it away sooner and calm down sooner. You know, somebody, somebody says something and I feel disrespected. Somebody cuts me off in traffic. Somebody, you know, all these things, these, these everyday irritants that, can, that I could ruminate about, I'm able to put away a little sooner. One of the other things that that stood out that I hadn't considered from your your good life book is that you say all friends have benefits, even the most casual of friendships. So, in fact, you say that it might be the most overlooked relationships you have. What is the value of these casual friendships? What do they do for us? What does it do for the others? Well, on a moment-to-moment basis, they give us little hits of recognition, little hits of well-being. So, you know, the person who gets your coffee, if you stop for coffee at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, you know, and you see that person again and again, that little hit of recognition of I see you uh, makes us feel a little better. The person who delivers the mail, the person who checks us out in the grocery line at the grocery store. Uh, so those are those little day-to-day hits of well-being that we get just from being recognized and exchanging a few pleasantries. Then what we know is that people who are more peripheral to us are more likely to help connect us in new ways to new parts of the world. So they, they actually did a study of how easy it, which connections help you find jobs the most reliably. And it turns out it's your more peripheral connections. Because the people in your close wor- wor- network, uh, you know those people, you tend to know the people they know. It's often the more peripheral people who can say, oh, I know somebody who does this, something you might never have thought about or never be able to connect with until a more peripheral person in your life makes the connection for you. So just in a perfectly transactional way, more peripheral relationships can really be a benefit to us. That's, uh, that's beautiful. Uh, it's one of the reasons that when I go to Whole Foods, I wait in line. 
for a cashier. I don't do the self-checkout almost ever. Yeah. Um, I Number one, I like the idea that there's jobs in the world around me uh, because I don't like the idea of a whole bunch of starving people with pitchforks. Um, that's not the future you want to make. So it's nice yeah. to have that. And the human interaction is beneficial and healthy for everyone. And you can be nice to someone. And what I've noticed in the last year or so is that when I do that, I feel like cashiers have gotten nicer than they used mm. to be. I don't know if that's because there's less of them or something, or maybe they're just happy to be in the world without a mask on or something. Uh, but um, it, it's like there's there's just more kindness out there than has been before. And, and if you're listening to the show, I'm not even kidding, like skip the self-checkout, wait in line, and like look at the person who's checking stuff out, and you might be surprised at what you see in there. And, you know, I heard a wonderful story today about customer service representatives and how beleaguered they are because people, when they're calling, they're upset about something. So if you can remember, be nice to your customer service representative. Oh, God, yeah. They're often so stressed and they're dealing with you and literally 75 other people each day trying to help you solve a problem and they with limited real resources. So, so I just heard about that as another place where you could spread some of your kindness and some of your well-being in the world. Uh, amen. I, I started my career running IT, which is part of that is help desk services. And those are the most abused, unhappy people ever are working yeah. at help desk, except yeah. one in 10 people just gets like this gleam in their eye that like, you know, I'm just helping people all day long. And they look, it's, it's like a continuous act of service and they never get beaten down by the job. And they're the wow. best people at customer service Wow! because they, they've just embodied that. Oh, the people who are calling me need help. No wonder they're cranky. I don't, I never got there when I worked at the help desk. <laughs> I always tried to help. <laughs> it's a hard job. It is indeed. Well, I, I think you are working on, uh, on such a, a venerable project, this idea of now multi-generational, what, what makes a good life, how are you going to go about passing the baton on? What's the process for that? Well, we make our data public. So we, are, we, we have to de-identify it, it's called, so it's confidential. No one can know who the individuals are. But then we make the data available to other researchers who, because we're not the only people who can think up important, interesting questions to ask using these data. So we're going to make it public. We're going to um, collaborate. We do collaborate with many other research groups. And we may be at a point where we want to pass the baton because we are a study of all Caucasian people. And because that's who you started with in 1938 in Boston. The whole city was 97% Caucasian. But, uh, and and we've only presented findings in the book that have been, you know, found in samples of people of color and other ethnic groups. And But we'd like to see other studies carry this baton forward um, with different ethnic groups. It's hard to do because a longitudinal study takes so many years, but we are really hoping that this will be the future, that that diversity, for us, diversity looked like socioeconomic diversity and it looked like gender diversity, but now we'd like it to be a different kind of diversity and we think other people can do that better than we can. 
That is, uh, that's really beautiful. Maybe there's a, a way to, to post, you know, all of the, the study data that you're collecting in a structured format. So other studies can use the same format, even if they gather more data. So then at least you could do a, a meta study using consistently gathered data. It's that kind of multi-generational, you know, cross-country, cross-cultural working together that unlocks a lot of the keys of of what it is to be a human. You know, we, we did, we don't get born with an operating manual. Right. Um, I sure would like it if we did. Right. Uh, and so it's our job to unlock this. And as you know, because you've studied Buddhism, many societies would take a few of them, probably the weird ones and say, you go live in the cave and look at the wall and tell us what you see. And, and you know, and you go down this path of learning. That's the historical way of being a biohacker. So let's just pay a lot of attention. We don't have the structured math and data, but eventually you can you can get wisdom with enough generations and enough time. What you're doing with this study is the quantitative version of that same venerable practice, saying, okay, we're going to study the condition of humanity, but we're going to do it in a more precise way than has been done before. And I think it's going to illuminate a lot about, a lot about what makes us happy versus what makes us rich or what makes us, you know, live longer or whatever else, because longevity and wealth and fame and power just don't equal happiness in any way, shape or form. In fact, they're probably inversely correlated with it. Yeah. So I, I love it, the work you're doing, and I'm, I'm wishing you the very best. Well, thank you. This was such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, you are so welcome, Robert. Likewise, it is always a great pleasure. One of the reasons I do the show is to get to talk with people who are more experienced and know more or other things than I do. So thank you for your life's work so far. And I can't wait to see your next book after this one. Guys, you want to read this book. It is absolutely worth your time. And it's called The Good Life by Robert Weldinger. And Mark Schultz. Oh, and Mark Schultz. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. It's got a co-author on there. I'm just interviewing Robert, obviously. Okay. Thanks again for your time. Keep teaching people. Keep uh, therapizing people, if that's a word. Therapizing <laughs> it is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's, this See, was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thanks. Okay. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.